Well, again, you know, the last time our class met, uh, Joshua provided a very helpful exposition of the Song of Solomon. And in doing so, he brought to completion the year-long uh, course of study on King Solomon and his writings. And certainly that has been a very rich study. Now, those of you that have a good memory that can remember all the way back to the beginning of that study, you might recall the fact that we talked about Solomon being a very complex individual. You know, he was a man who, based on a humble request, was gifted by God with incomparable wisdom. And yet, in spite of his wisdom, he fell into disobedience during much of his reign as king of Israel. And so in him, we saw traits to admire, but we also witnessed periods of obvious sin in his life uh, that resulted in horrendous consequences for the nation. So the long and short of it is Solomon was a complicated man. Well, now this morning, as we return to the New Testament and we begin this series on the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we're going to turn our attention to matters related to the local church. And the local church will find kind of a parallel with Solomon in that Solomon was a complex individual. And when it comes to the local church, uh, you know, there are often situations where uh, the church proves to be a very complex entity. And uh, you're going to find that in these two letters, we're going to see plenty of evidence that uh, life in the church can indeed be messy. Well, now, just to get our minds focused on the subject of the church, let me start out by asking you something. If you were to move to another city and you didn't know a soul and you were looking for a place of worship, uh, and uh, so if you don't know anybody, maybe you don't even have internet connection, uh, what would you look for in a church? You know, as you visited around to various churches, what would you hope to find? I heard somebody say the word of God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd hope to find something like countryside. What are some specific characteristics? Again, I heard somebody say word of God. I assume that you're saying you would want it taught, preached. Yeah. Fellowship is whole. Yeah. Yeah, kind of a, a family environment among the members of the church. Yes. Yeah, staying in the text, sticking to the Word of God and not just sharing stories. That would certainly be important. Yes, Sandy. Yeah, you would want to know if their if their doctrine is is certainly uh, on track, and in terms of of the body, in terms of how people relate to each other, what would you hope to see? You'd, you'd hope to see a unified church, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah where people are, are really on the same page. People sharing fellowship in groups like this and breaking bread in their homes and mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, really interacting with each other. <laughs> yeah, people who say hello, a friendly church would certainly be important. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's a four-letter word we could use to summarize this? It starts with L and it ends with E. Love. Yeah, we'd, you'd really want to find a, a body where there is unity and where there is love uh, for each other, I think, would, would certainly be a important characteristics. You'd probably be looking for a place that's engaged in evangelism and missions and things like that. You know, these are the kind of characteristics, the things that we've talked about, these are the kind of characteristics that you would expect to find in a church that was established by the Apostle Paul and a church that was taught by the Apostle Paul. You know, think about the church in Thessalonica as an example. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, Paul writes these words to the church in Thessalonica. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God and our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in this Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place 
your faith toward God has gone forth. And then he wrote him a second letter. And in his second letter, he adds this. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now, Thessalonica, was it a perfect church? No. No. But it was certainly a solid church. And what's interesting is that when you go to the book of Acts and you read about how that church was established, you discover that Paul was not there very long, perhaps as short as just a a few weeks uh, before a group of unbelieving Jews stirred up a mob against them and forced them to leave the city. And yet, the church flourished. Now, by way of contrast, imagine, if you will, a church established and taught by the Apostle Paul where he didn't just stay a few weeks. He stayed a full year and a half teaching the brethren, a church that shortly after Paul departed had the privilege of sitting under the teaching of Apollos. And Apollos was a man who's described in the book of Acts as being mighty in the Scriptures. So they had Paul for a year and a half. Paul leaves. Apollos comes. Apollos, a man mighty in the Scriptures, is teaching them. And then think as well of this same church being gifted by the Holy Spirit to the point where, as we are going to see in uh, chapter 1, Paul puts it this way. He says they were not lacking in any spiritual gift. So this, as we will see, is a situation in the church in Corinth. Now, for those of you who already have some familiarity with uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, or the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, um, would you describe this church in Corinth as being a solid church like Thessalonica? No. No, not exactly. <laughs> Any words come to mind when you think of the church in, in uh, Corinth? Yikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, certainly a, a, a place where there's problems. There's lots of troubles. So what's the point? Well, the point is that great teaching and spiritual giftedness among the membership are not by themselves a guarantee of steady growth in spiritual maturity. You know, in a number of respects, the church in Corinth had, had kind of veered off course because many of its members had failed to apply what they had been taught. Yes, they sat under great teaching, uh, but they had not necessarily applied it to their own lives. And so after just a few years, they were in serious need of correction, something that is needed by any church that has gotten off track. And so the overall theme of this letter could be expressed like this. In fact, if you want a one-word uh, theme, it's correction, <laughs> but I've put something up here that's a little longer than that. Probably doesn't lend itself to, to being memorized real quickly, but I think it kind of captures the idea of this letter. The theme is that godly correction is essential for a wayward church to grow in Christian maturity through God-ordained leaders exhorting its members to turn from worldly thinking and to live by biblical truth. This is a church that needs correction. They need to learn how to take the Scripture and to apply it. So that's the kind of the basic idea of this particular letter. You know, just as correction from the Word of God is essential in raising godly children in the home, so correction from the Word of God is necessary to combat wrong thinking uh, and to produce spiritual maturity in the local church. And that's precisely what we find the Apostle Paul doing in this letter. He's, he's pointed in what he uh, offers as correction, and yet he does it in a loving way. So you, you won't mistake what, he's <laughs> what his point is, uh, but at the same time, it's very clear that he loves these people dearly. So our task this morning is just to take a brief look at the background of this letter that's known to us as 1 Corinthians and to prepare us for what lies ahead. We're going to be going into a verse-by-verse uh, exposition through uh, this a particular letter in the weeks ahead, but now let's just consider the background. You know, I think before getting into the letter itself, uh, we want to understand a little bit about Corinth. Well, let me back up just a step. You know, I mentioned that Paul wrote this. If you, if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians, you can see right in the first verse, it says, Paul called in as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So obviously, Paul is identified right out uh, at the outset as the author. But in addition to that, Paul is mentioned by name 
uh, a second time in chapter 1. He's mentioned in chapter 3. He's mentioned in chapter 4. And he uh, provides a closing with his name in it in uh, chapter 16. So there's just no question that Paul is the author of this letter. But again, before we turn to the letter itself, let's consider Corinth. You know, one of the most distinctive features of the city of Corinth was its strategic location. And I don't know how you guys are in terms of geography, but I have a couple of maps here. This first one, uh, it just gives you a picture of where Corinth is located from a contemporary perspective. And so this is a modern map, and you can see that the, the lighter shaded area here, uh, that is the nation of Greece. And you can see that Corinth is located on the isthmus, that narrow land bridge that connects the region known as Peloponnese to the main portion of Greece. So that's Corinth as it sits today. And the ancient city uh, was basically in the same location. So the city of Corinth in Paul's day was located just a few miles from today's modern city of Corinth. And it was situated on a plateau overlooking that isthmus. Consequently, land travel from any of the cities on the Peloponnese, such as Olympia, which was the home of the Olympic Games, that's where the Olympic Games started, or Sparta, anybody living in that area, if they wanted to travel to Athens or any place north, uh, they had to either go through Corinth or near Corinth. So that meant the city was of great strategic importance from a military uh, standpoint, as you can imagine. And as a result, Corinth was destroyed and rebuilt multiple times over the course of the city's history. But not only was the city's location important from the standpoint of mili military control, it was also key to the city's commercial strength. Now, that little land bridge, that isthmus, I've been practicing how to say that. It's hard to say. <laughs> isthmus. It's only four miles wide. <laughs> and what's interesting is that Corinth itself wasn't a port city, but there was a port on one side of the isthmus and a port on the other side. And so Corinth was served by two seaports that were kind of right next door. So on one side you had the Aeonian Sea and on the other side the Aegean Sea. And uh, for that reason, the fact that it was served by these two seaports that weren't very far apart, uh, there's kind of an interesting thing that would take place there. The MacArthur Bible Handbook notes this. It says, since travel by sea around the Peloponnese involved a 250-mile voyage that was dangerous and obviously time-consuming, most captains carried their ships on skids or rollers across the isthmus directly past Corinth. Can you picture that? You know, instead of going all the way around that, that uh, body of land... Uh, they would take their ships and they would pull them out of the water and they would put them on rollers or on skids and drag them for four miles uh, because it was much safer to do that and much faster to do that. Well, the result of that is uh, Corinth was a busy location not only for land travelers, you know, say heading to Athens or, or points north, but for sea travelers as well. And the, as a result, the city became a great commercial center and it grew to be very wealthy. Corinth was also a sports city. Uh, it was the site of the Isthmian, this was really hard to say, Isthmian Games, <laughs> try that three times fast, which rivaled the Olympic Games as the most important sports competition of that era. And these games drew many visitors who contributed still more to the city's wealth. And also, Corinth had great political significance. Uh, the city of Corinth actually rebelled against the Roman Empire, probably not a real smart thing to do. They did that in 146 B.C., and so the Romans came in and destroyed the city. The only thing they left was a few pillars standing from uh, the temple of Apollo. And so once the Romans got through, that's what was left, and that's what's standing uh, to today uh, in part of the, uh, the ruins of what was once the ancient city of Corinth. Now, you have to use your uh, imagination a little bit. Uh, yeah, on this next uh, slide that I'm going to show you, yeah, actually, Julius Caesar, a few decades after the city was destroyed, he had it completely rebuilt, and he had it rebuilt in Roman style, you know, with Roman layout and Roman architecture, and, uh, uh, you know, built it back into a prominent city once again and established it as the Roman province capital, uh, the capital of Achaia. 
And so this picture just kind of gives you an idea of what the Roman architecture looked like, that uh, Corinth was a, was a significant place. This happens to be a, a Roman fountain that they had constructed, but uh, again, use your imagination a little bit, and it gives you an idea of what the, the splendor of that city uh, looked like at one time. Well, I mentioned that it was made the capital province, the province of Achaia, and you might be wondering, well, where in the world is Achaia? And so here's a map that shows Achaia in, in the brown shade. And the lighter color just above it is the Roman province of Macedonia. And so you can see Achaia really covers quite a large area. And uh, uh, Corinth, as a result, was a very prominent city from a political standpoint as well. Well, in the first century AD, Corinth was not only a very large city and a commercial powerhouse, but as one of Rome's provincial capitals, it was very important politically. In addition to these traits, Corinth also had quite a reputation for its cultural characteristics, and its reputation was not good. The city was a very idolatrous place, and it was filled with temples devoted to pagan gods. But there was one temple that stood out as being the most significant at all of all. At the highest point of the city, a 2,000-foot-high rock hill known as the Acropolis, a, a word which means high city, the Acropolis of Corinth, there stood a temple to Aphrodite. Anybody know anything about Aphrodite? What was she the goddess of? Love. Yes, yeah, she was the goddess of love. And so here in this picture, you can see that uh, rock outcropping, and you can picture the temple on top of it. Uh, and employed at this temple, there were 1,000 priestesses who served as temple prostitutes, ready to entice citizens and travelers alike to participate in the worship of Aphrodite. That's what Corinth was all about. So this became a big attraction, not only to local residents, but also to travelers passing through. Again, it's on that prominent land route, and it's also where, where seafarers would, would, would go across that, uh, uh, that isthmus. So this was another great source of income and obviously also a great source of uh, moral corruption. There was actually an expression that arose over time. The expression was to Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize uh, meant to describe any place that was tending towards sexual immorality and debauchery. So you would not want Southlake to become Corinthianized. <laughs> I mean, that would be, uh, you know, a real black mark on, on any community to, to call it by that name. So, putting all this together, we could describe the culture of Corinth as being wealthy, materialistic, pagan, and grossly immoral. That's the place <laughs> uh, that we're considering here this morning. And it was so immoral that it had a negative reputation throughout that region of the Roman Empire. So does that sound to you like an easy place for Christian ministry? How'd you like to go there and proclaim the gospel? It'd be challenging, would it not? And that leads us to consider the church at Corinth. Well, in the book of Acts, Luke tells us about its founding. So I invite you to turn back to uh, Acts chapter 18. And we'll get a little bit of background here. You know, on Paul's second missionary journey... After receiving a vision calling him to go to Macedonia, an area that today is in northern Greece, Paul preached and established churches in Philippi and in Thessalonica and in Berea. And then he came to Athens. I don't know if you remember that account. He came to Athens, that famous center of Greek philosophy and intellectual life, and there he encountered very little interest in the gospel. And so after a short time in Athens, he continued on his way south and his next stop, of course, was Corinth. The year was most likely A.D. 50, probably either A.D. 50 or A.D. 51. And we can only imagine what Paul must have been thinking as he approached Corinth with its reputation, you know, heading into this center of debauchery and rampant sin. I'm sure the question entered his mind, would the people of Corinth show any more interest in the gospel uh, than the philosophers in Athens had been. It's a, a different kind of culture, but also one that perhaps would not be very uh, receptive. Well, take a look at chapter 18, uh, verse 1. After these things, he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, 
having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So, in God's providence, who did he encounter on his arrival? Jews. A couple of Jews, yeah, by name... Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, so he met these two uh, Jewish people, this Jewish couple, and uh, they had relocated from Rome to Corinth when uh, the Roman emperor uh, Claudius had forced all the Jews to leave Rome. Most likely, Aquila and Priscilla were already believers at the time that Paul met them because the church in Rome had already been established uh, by this time. So likely they are uh, uh, fellow uh, followers of Christ. But what else do we learn in these verses uh, they had in common with Paul? Tent making. Yeah, they have to be in the same profession. And so he moves in with them and they, they set up shop. And generally, the way that worked is if you were a craftsperson, you would set up shop in the agora, in the marketplace. And this is what remains of the agora in Corinth. So. Again, you kind of have to use your imagination. It doesn't exactly look like a bustling marketplace at this point in time. Uh, but that's likely where Paul would have been with Priscilla and Aquila uh, making tents and selling them. Verse 4, And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So as was Paul's custom in every city that he went to, he started out at the synagogue. He started out uh, preaching the gospel to the Jews and to any God-fearing Gentiles, that is, Gentiles who had become uh, worshipers of the God of Israel. He would go there and he would preach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But once Silas and Timothy arrived, what did that allow Paul to do? Full-time ministry, yeah. So now no longer is he a self-supporting missionary. He now has uh, a couple of assistants there, and it allows him uh, the freedom to engage in ministry uh, full-time. He can concentrate on the ministry of the Word. So far, so good, right? The Lord has brought together a significant ministry team. And then we come to verse 6. But when they, that is uh, the Jews in the synagogue... When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so when those in the synagogue heard Paul's message about Christ, they concluded, wait a minute, this, this Christ you're talking about, he can't be the Messiah. He doesn't fit our image at all of who Messiah is. And they began blaspheming Christ, and they were hostile toward Paul and, and drove him out of the synagogue. And so the result of that was he turned his full attention to uh, the Corinthian Gentiles. Verse 7, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So Paul didn't have to travel very far to resume his ministry, did he? <laughs> How about right next door? Titius Justus was a Roman Gentile, but he was a worshiper of the God of Israel. And again, he, he lived right next door to the synagogue. And the implication here, it's not spelled out in the verse, but the implication here is that uh, uh, Titius became a follower of Jesus but what's much more surprising is that Crispus, who was what? What was his role? Leader of the synagogue. <laughs> uh, he came to Christ himself. Can you imagine how that must have irked the unbelieving Jews? What's our leader doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that brought a, a strong reaction. Well, verse 8 goes on to say that many other Corinthians came to Christ, most of whom were probably Gentiles. But Paul was in an intimidating environment, wasn't he? He was in a, a really corrupt, dark cultural setting. And it's not hard to imagine him longing to minister in a more appealing place. But notice how the Lord provided Paul with direct encouragement. Look at verse 9. 
And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Paul's assignment was clear, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, the Lord told him exactly what he was to do. He was to speak, and he was to not be afraid. You know, what a great encouragement it would be to know that within Corinth, within this uh, really awful uh, environment, uh, the Lord, you know, before the foundation of the earth, <laughs> had already chosen people to be his, people that Paul knew were going to respond positively uh, to the gospel. You know, I think there's a point of application here uh, for us to think about. Uh, you know, how often are we tempted when we're meeting people or talking to people to kind of size them up and think, well, this person might really be open to the gospel, or this person, you know, doesn't seem to have any interest whatsoever. Uh, but just a, a reminder here that uh, it's the Lord's work to change hearts. <laughs> And it's not our place to decide who is or who is not likely to respond. Uh, our task is to communicate the message, same task that Paul was given. We speak the gospel, we speak the truth, and then let the Lord uh, work in hearts. Well, verse 11 goes on and says, He settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So... How long? A year and a half. You know, relative to the time Paul spent in other cities, a year and a half was unusually long. Uh, over the course of Paul's ministry, there were two locations where he would spend more time. One of them was Ephesus. He spent about two and a half years there. The other one was Rome because he was imprisoned. <laughs> so those are the only two locations where Paul spent more time, you know, based on the record uh, that, that we have. Uh, so Corinth is unusual. He's spending a lot of time here. Uh, teaching in this church. Now, as we saw, God had just promised in a vision that no one in Corinth would harm Paul, but he did face opposition. Take a look at verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Well, the judgment seat was a large stone platform, and it was located in the middle of the Agora. Again, we can't really picture exactly what it looked like here, but you can imagine the marketplace being a, a busy place, a bustling place, and in the middle of it was this flat stone uh, platform, and that's where uh, the, uh, the Roman leader would uh, hold court for any public hearings. So here we have Gallio, he's the governor of the Roman province, and he is there uh, again uh, presiding over court. And so a group of Jewish synagogue members brought Paul before the governor. And what were they accusing him of? What were they saying that he was doing? Hey, Brian. Yeah. So you, can you imagine going before a, a pagan Roman authority and saying, this guy is teaching people to worship in a way that, that we don't agree with. <laughs> seems, seems rather strange. Yeah, so he's, he's accusing Paul of violating Jewish law through what they consider to be false worship. So let's pick up at verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. <laughs> But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So was Gallio impressed? <laughs> no, uh, obviously not. You know, he, he viewed the charges against Paul as, as merely being an internal dispute, uh, you know, among factions of Judaism. And he dismissed the case, and he ran Paul's accusers off. But then in a surprising turn of events, uh, they, uh, the people that were present there vented their wrath against whom? 
Sosthenes, yeah, the leader of the synagogue, and they began beating him. You'll notice that uh, Luke, as he records this, he doesn't spell out the reason why Sosthenes was made a target here, but there's a couple of possibilities. One is we, we know from historical records that uh, the city of Corinth was a place that had a very strong undercurrent of anti-Semitism. So this may have been Gentiles who were listening to what they considered to be a silly case, a frivolous case, uh, and they became annoyed with the Jews and then took the opportunity to attack their, their leader, Sosthenes. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is the Jews themselves might have been unhappy with Sosthenes because uh, he had been unable to make a charge stick against Paul, and they hated Paul and, and his message, and then that prompted his own people his own synagogue members, uh, to turn against him and attack him. In any case, it's likely that the same Sosthenes, who later came, later came to faith, uh, is the ministry companion that Paul mentions by name in 1 Corinthians 1.1. You might remember, we read that verse a few minutes ago, and it mentions it's from Paul and Sosthenes, and it could very well be this same individual. In fact, that's likely, I think. Either way, was Gallio concerned by any of this? No, you know, go ahead and beat Sosthenes, that's okay. <laughs> so Acts 18 goes on to explain that Paul remained in Corinth for a good while after his charge against Paul was brought before Gallio. And when the time came for Paul to depart, he left along with Priscilla and Aquila. And they headed to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila debarked, and they remained there. That kind of became their base of operations. Whereas Paul was just there in Ephesus a short time before heading to Caesarea and to Jerusalem and then returning to his sending church in Antioch. That completed his second missionary journey. Of course, later on, Paul would return to Ephesus on his third journey. So with that in mind, now jump down to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos an Alexandrian by birth, so he's from North Africa, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here we have kind of an interesting character, Apollos. Uh, he was an Old Testament believer, so he knew the Scriptures and he understood the prophecies in Scripture concerning the Messiah. So he knew about Jesus. He knew uh, about the, the fulfillment of prophecy. But evidently, he did not understand about Jesus' death and resurrection. But God in His providence uh, provided Priscilla and Aquila to take him aside and explain to him in its fullness the gospel, that yes, Jesus is Messiah, and he died. He gave up his life to pay the penalty for sin, and then he was raised uh, from the dead, proving that God had accepted his sacrifice. So he's given this full explanation, and uh, notice what happens next, verse 27. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, and when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrated by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So where did he go? Achaia, right? Well, Achaia is a big place. We saw that on the map. It's a large province with a number of prominent cities. But the first verse of chapter 19 tells us his specific destination. Notice chapter 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and so on. So where Apollos went <laughs> was Corinth. So with that background in mind uh, on how the church in Corinth was established, let's take a moment to consider the church's advantages. From what we've seen in our reading in Acts, how many prominent New Testament figures have been involved with the church in Corinth? How many of them can you name? You got Paul. I'll give you that one. <laughs> Apollos. You got Paul and Apollos. Who else? Priscilla and Aquila. So there's four. Yeah, I guess we could add him. Who, who came down to help Paul? 
Timothy and Silas. Yeah, so you have quite a ministry team there, don't you? You know, as we've seen, they've got uh, strong leadership, strong teaching. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, again, as we've seen, you know, Paul remained there for an extended period of time, uh, preaching, teaching, disciple making. And then not long after he departed, uh, he was followed by Apollos, a man who was mighty in the scriptures. And then consider, too, the impact of Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy and Silas and perhaps Sosthenes at some point. You know, this was a church that at its inception was unusually well-blessed with strong spiritual teaching and guidance. But the church at Corinth had even more than that. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you want to flip back there again for a second. 1 Corinthians 1, look at what Paul writes in verses 4 through 8. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So they've been enriched, haven't they? So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, think about it uh, for a moment. The church was well-equipped to flourish. You know, they had uh, not only great teaching, but they also had uh, an abundance of spiritual gifts. As Paul says in verse 7, they were not lacking in any gift, literally any gift of grace. So this is a, a church that has received a, a good measure of, of grace among its uh, membership, uh, divinely bestowed gifts. They've been equipped for ministry. They've been equipped for uh, service. And that's what the Holy Spirit was doing among them. So it sounds like they've got everything they need to be a really strong church, right? They've got great teaching. They've got uh, the Spirit active among them, uh, many, many gifted members. But <laughs> as we're going to discover as we work through this letter, growth and real spiritual maturity requires much more than just teaching and spiritual gifts. It requires serious effort on the part of the church members to recognize and root out worldly thinking and to replace it uh, with humble obedience to the Lord and His Word. Again, drawing from the MacArthur Bible Handbook, there's a note in there that describes the underlying problem of the church in Corinth as being worldliness. And I think that's exactly right. I think that's a, a good way to, to think of the issues in this church. Uh, that handbook expresses the issue this way. It says, the most serious problem of the Corinthian church was worldliness and unwillingness to divorce the culture around them. Most of the believers could not consistently separate themselves from their old, selfish, immoral, and pagan ways. But historically, <laughs> how did the selfish worldliness display itself in the Corinthian church? You know, what were the symptoms? Well, with a quick reading in this, of this letter, it's not hard to identify the church's problems. You know, these problems, we really can break them down into, into three broad categories. The first one is, is this, uh, divisions in the church. You know, the church had become splintered into factions, lining up behind their favorite apostle or their favorite Bible teacher, and it resulted in quarrels. So if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10... He says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. This is a big issue uh, in this church. We won't take time to, to read it, but at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, well, actually, he, he Devotes, the first four chapters are really devoted to the subject. And at the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about one of the issues that they're dealing with, and it's spiritual immaturity. And then in chapter 4, he talks about their problem of divisions being uh, fueled by their spiritual pride. So, you know, think about divisions. That's a big deal in this church, a big problem. Second area that's really a, a major uh, point of trouble it's disobedience in the church, just clear disobedience to the Word of God. 
You know, the church turned a blind eye to immorality in their midst. If you turn over to chapter 5, look at verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. So they, <laughs> there's immorality in the church and they're not dealing with it. Um, another issue, they were filing lawsuits against each other. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to turn, excuse me, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So, lots of trouble in terms of uh, just plain disobedience. The end of chapter 6, it's very clear that they had a, a weak understanding of the sins of the body. Uh, so, that brings us to the third major area, and that's just difficulties in the church. And those difficulties, first one was misunderstandings of marriage and singleness. So, Paul offers some extensive teaching on that subject in chapter 7. Uh, misuse of, of Christian liberty. You know, as a Christian, when you're making a decision whether to do something or whether not to do something that's not spelled out in Scripture, you know, how do you decide and how does it affect other people? Uh, that was a, a big issue where they were not uh, uh, really taking into consideration how they were impacting other people. That's chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Again, a big deal. Um, also, issues in worship, gender roles, and the abuse of the Lord's Supper. That's in chapter 11. The misuse of spiritual gifts. That's chapters 12, 13, and 14. Another big <laughs> problem area. And then, you know, kind of a doctrinal misunderstanding. Uh, the truth of the resurrection was denied, actually, by some of their members. I assume a tiny minority. But Paul takes the opportunity to teach extensively on the, the resurrection. So that's kind of a, a real broad outline of, of uh, this particular letter, the issues that were, that were being addressed there. And so let's consider Paul's letter itself. The purpose. What would you guess Paul's purpose is in writing this letter? <laughs> Correction. Correction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, it's just so clear uh, throughout the, the, the letter that this is a church that... Um, they kind of need to be taken to the woodshed. They, they really need to be in, encouraged to, to get with the program and, and start doing what's right and stop living selfishly. And so Paul devotes uh, much of this letter to addressing serious problems in the church. But also, in addition, he answers questions uh, that they had written to him. And you'll see that that's uh, pretty clear as well. In terms of, of when it was written and from where, uh, the letter was probably written in A.D. 55, so do you remember what I said on what year was the church established? A.D. 50 or A.D. 51? So this letter is coming roughly five years after the church was established. Well, it was established in A.D. 50. Paul was there for a year and a half. So the letter's coming maybe three and a half years after Paul had departed. And in the meantime, they've had Apollos. <laughs> so the letter's not that long after Paul uh, had been there. And then just a, a quick word on the sequence of letters. You know, in our Bible, this letter is entitled 1 Corinthians, making you think that this is the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, but actually, it's not. Um, it just happens to be the first of two letters in the Bible addressed to the church in Corinth. In chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you, past tense, in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world and, and so on. So clearly, Paul had written to them at least one other letter before this one, and perhaps he had written more. And it's also clear that Paul had received correspondence from the church containing questions because in verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul wrote, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, and so on. So, in a sense, this is at least 2 Corinthians. It's, it's a... Paul's had a correspondence relationship with them prior to this. And there's also strong evidence that Paul wrote another letter between what we know as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, one that is sometimes referred to as the severe letter. And that's a subject that we will deal with later when we get on to uh, the study of 2 Corinthians. Now, as far as the structure uh, is concerned, 
I have an outline here. What I did is I, I looked at a number of different resources and I kind of pulled them together. Uh, they were really very, very similar um, uh, to give you an outline of the letter. And this will be posted, you know, if you go to the church's website and, and you go to uh, uh, this particular lesson, you will find uh, all these slides that I've, I've had this morning, including this outline. But uh, again, uh, he starts out in chapter one, of course, with greeting and introduction, and then he deals with the subject of divisions in the church. That's the rest of chapter one, all the way through the end of chapter four. And he talks about the reality of the divisions, the causes of the divisions, and then an exhortation to end the divisions. And then he talks about the disobedience in the church, as we saw in chapters five and six. A failure to apply church discipline uh, is in chapter five. And then bringing lawsuits before pagan judges is the first part of chapter six. And then sexual immorality is covered in the second half of chapter six. Then he goes to uh, the difficulties in the church. And that's chapter seven uh, all the way to the end of chapter 15. Marriage and singleness, Christian liberty, instruction on Christian worship, the certainty of the resurrection. And then in chapter 16, he gives uh, some final words and uh, messages for the saints and some personal notes. So that's the, well, let me show the second half of it there. So that's the basic outline. Again, this will be uh, posted if, if you want to uh, refer to it. But you'll find as we read through the letter, the structure is really pretty clear as, as we go through it. Uh, Paul's very organized in his thinking. So here's something to consider. If we had to select just one verse in this letter that summarizes the essence of Paul's message, what would it be? Well, I would suggest to you that a good choice would be chapter 14, verse 20. So as we wrap up, turn to chapter 14 and look at verse 20. Here Paul writes, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Really kind of sums up what the issue is in this, in this church. Uh, they're immature in their, their thinking. And he says, if you want to be in, immature, be immature toward evil. <laughs> Stay away from it. Uh, you know, don't, don't get into that stuff. It's, a, it's really a call to holiness and then a call to be spiritually mature. Do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So, next week we will begin our verse-by-verse -verse study. But before we depart, let's just consider some implications and, and perhaps application of what we've talked about here this morning. You know, just think of what we've done this morning as kind of the, the big picture overview of 1 Corinthians, and there's just a, a few points that perhaps we could take away from this. The first one is this. When church members fail to grow in personal holiness, it poses a great danger to the church. You know, you can have a church with great teaching, but if people aren't applying it, if people aren't dealing with sin in their lives, if people are just kind of going on about their, their business, uh, it poses great danger to the church, and that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. So when the church takes on a relaxed attitude towards sin, when church members fail to recognize sin for what it is and, and they fail to address it, the church begins to look a lot like the world. It loses its effectiveness, and that's what was going on in Corinth. It was a tough, tough culture. Cosmopolitan, affluent, world. Mm-hmm. That takes us to our next point. <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> yeah, sound biblical teaching is essential, but it's not sufficient for spiritual growth. That growth in Christ-likeness will only occur when the commands of Scripture are applied to sin and it's rooted out. And that's why the leadership of Countryside is committed not only to teaching the Bible, but also to personal discipleship. And you think about the ministries, including Sunday school, home fellowship groups where we have a chance to interact with, with people on a personal level, men's and women's ministries, men of the word, 
And most importantly, the Partners Discipleship Program. Yeah, it's just important to get the word into people's lives, get them uh, following and, and, and obeying. It's, it's absolutely crucial. Thirdly, the writings of the apostles contained in Scripture provide the church with everything needed to address church problems. You might think, well, gosh, Corinth had a great example. They got a personal letter from none other than the Apostle Paul dealing specifically with their problems. And uh, we might, boy, wouldn't it be nice to get a letter like that? Well, we've got a whole collection of them. It's called the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, we have everything that we need to address church problems, uh, you know, right here uh, in this book. So while the Corinthian church had the advantage of a personal letter from Paul, tailor-made to address their issues, we have an even greater advantage in that we have the whole sweep of the New Testament scriptures to give us the instruction and correction necessary to handle any church problem. And then lastly, the writings of the apostles contained in scripture provide the church with everything needed to address church problems. While the Corinthian church had the advantage of a personal letter from the apostle Paul, tailor-made to address their issues, an even greater advantage is, uh, you know, having the, uh, the scriptures. So, there are some things for you to, to think about. You know, I think um, perhaps nowhere is this sort of instruction, this correction to the church. I don't know if there's any place in the New Testament where it's more clear than it is in, in 1 Corinthians. And when you look at a church like Countryside, you think, well, there aren't any problems here. Uh, I can assure you there are problems here. <laughs> and uh, if there are, you're not aware of problems here, it's probably because you're not very involved. <laughs> I mean, it's just the, the nature. When you get a collection of sinners who are brought together by the grace of God, uh, sinners who are hopefully, you know, kind of rooting out the sin in their lives, there's going to be issues, there's going to be frictions, there's going to be disagreements, and uh, um, we're going to see that very clearly in, in this letter and then see a model of, of how to deal with it. So, I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to this study, and next week we will launch into the beginning of chapter one. I think we do chapter one in, th in three different installments, so we'll spend a lot of time in that particular uh, chapter. But with that, let me close us in, in prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, how grateful we are for your word, and, and Father, how much we need uh, to hear from you. Father, we recognize that uh, our own thinking has been uh, terribly distorted, terribly twisted by worldly thinking. And uh, Father, all of us are in need of, of continually uh, asking ourselves the question, and what I'm thinking and what I'm doing, is this, is this biblical or am I uh, following the pattern of the world? And so, I, Father, I pray that as we go through the course of the study over the coming weeks, uh, you would help us uh, not to just sit back and be critical of the Corinthians, but would uh, actually examine ourselves and where we need uh, your correction of us uh, through the scriptures. And so, Father, we just uh, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you haven't given up on us, that you are growing us and maturing us and making us more like Christ. And, Father, our desire is that you would just continue that process, uh, that we might uh, exalt you, that we might glorify you in every aspect of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.